are back for another Behind the Lens. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, Movie Shark DeBlore, film critic. Uh, you can find me here every Monday on Adrenaline Radio and AdviceRadio.com on Behind the Lens. And the rest of the week, you can find me online, MovieSharkDeBlore.com, on Examiner, in print, Culver City uh, Observer, the British Weekly, Global, and uh, a plethora of other papers and online outlets around the world. Today, interesting, interesting show for you today, as I'm sitting here playing with my mic. We had a rush setup today, people, so bear with me. Um, an incredible, incredible guest at the half-hour mark, Marcus Ryman. He's an actor-producer with One Night in Hollywood, um, among other film roles that he has had. He is also the director of TBA, which is the Thiessen Boma Misa Art Academy, which has an interesting concept. It's a philanthropic uh, academy that blends artists and scientists coming together uh, in a one of the divisions they do is environmental philanthropy. And with all of the films that are out there now, such as Racing Extinction, Energizing Our World, it's a perfect meeting of science and the arts. So, and there's something about a biofluorescent hawksbill sea turtle that uh, Marcus is involved with. So we're going to hear all about that, as well as One Night in Hollywood, which those of you listening in the Los Angeles area, if you haven't seen the film yet, it is playing this Friday as part of the Hollywood Independent Real Film Festival at the Lemley Music Hall on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills. Tickets are very inexpensive. The shorts program, of which One Night in Hollywood is, is at 6 o'clock. I think the tickets are $12.95 or $12.50. Go online. You'll find it. Get a ticket. The cast is going to be there, and apparently the film star, Ian Buchanan, the wonderful Duke Lavery of General Hospital, uh, is back from shooting uh, overseas, and it looks like he will be there as well, along with Marcus. So we'll talk with Marcus. Uh, we'll talk more with him about that at the half-hour mark when he joins us. But in the interim, some fabulous films open this weekend. I can't... They are appropriate. They are for everybody. They are incredible stories. The first one I wanted to... Well, before I even do that, we have to give... It is Oscar week, so... Instead of Oscars so white, we now have a a new thing this week. It is Oscar gift bag. There is a lawsuit pending. The Academy has filed a lawsuit against the company that is that puts together the Oscar gift bags. We've all heard about them, the $200,000 worth of merchandise that these nominees and presenters are going to get. Um, because of the way they bill them and describe them as being sanctioned by the Academy and Oscar-approved and Oscar-registered trademark gift bag, um, They've had this problem in the past. The Academy thought it would go away. It hasn't. There is now a lawsuit over Oscar, over the reference to Oscar gift bags. So we'll see how that plays out. That could be very, very fun and very interesting. Um, So we'll be watching that along with the see how the debate heats up on the Oscars so white um, argument that is still ongoing. So, but right now, let's talk about some of these movies that opened this weekend. I had the, the great privilege to do a lot of one-on-ones and, inter- and roundtable interviews on these films. 
The first one I want to talk about is Risen. Uh, it had a wonderful opening weekend. Um, stars Joseph Fiennes. It is a very unique telling. Virtually the entire world knows the story of the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection. It is the foundation of Christianity. Um, but we've heard many different versions. We've seen many different versions. With Risen, we we see something that it, we have not seen before. Um, it's directed by Kevin Reynolds. It stars Joseph Fine, uh, Tom Felton of Harry Potter fame, and Cliff Curtis. And if you don't know who Cliff Curtis is from his many, many TV shows and uh, films, you will after this film. He plays Christ. And notable, in light of the Oscars So White campaign out there, um, where the film is really getting some kudos is because typically Christ in all these film adaptations and TV adaptations over the decades has been presented as, you know, white, brownish blonde, gorgeous, curly locked hair, uh, blue eyes. However, considering when you look at DNA, when you look at genetics, obviously in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, in that region of the world, you're not going to have a blonde hair, blue eyed Christ. Uh, that would be miraculous. Um, Cliff Curtis is from New Zealand. He has the swarthier complexion, dark hair. And I have to say, he is incredible in the role. But the premise of Risen, for those of you that have not read anything on it or seen anything on it yet, is it is told from a totally unique perspective of a Roman tribune named Clavius, who is ordered by Pilate to find the body of Christ after he's crucified, after he is buried. He wants him to go find the body of Christ, which has mysteriously gone missing from the tomb. Um, he's expecting rabble-rousers. He's expecting rebellion. Uh, he's expecting zealots to raise their arms, and he wants to squelch that. So he sends Clavius. And in the hierarchy of of Rome at that time. A tribune is just below the Senate. He's managed to survive through decades of wars. And something very unique about this character of Clavius is he's very intellectual. He's very aware. He's very spiritual. He's He prays to the god Mars. He's very open-minded. And he looks at everything very analytically, which is what comes into play with Josephine's approach as Clavius, viewing this as a detective story. Think CSI, think Bones, and this is, and he is on a mission, on the trail, to find this missing body. Uh, so I, the first thing I, I talked to him about was approaching the character of Clavius and, embellish, and embodying all those characteristics of the intellect, the awareness, the spirituality. And this is what Joseph had to say. This is a, this is a perspective we haven't seen before. It's yeah. told through the Roman soldier. Yeah, yeah. Through the Tribune. And you know, how is it coming at this as a believer, which I know you do have, you are, and you know. So to to approach this from this new perspective and to embody that and get into the mindset 
of a very intellectual Roman. It's not just any, it's True. not just a soldier. That was one of the yeah. key factors of Clavius, yeah. was that he was a very intellectual man, mm-hmm. a very aware man, and a very open-minded man. True. You're, you're right, and that's very interesting. You picked up exactly on, on, on the right level of, of man. He, he prays to Mars, so we know he has a spirituality there. He is a Roman tribune. He's pretty much the highest level in, in, the, in the Roman army. The next place would probably be the Senate. Yeah. Um, he's probably at the end of his military career. Amazing he survived. A lot of them didn't pass their 20s. Um, he's exhausted. He's probably suffering from some form of post-traumatic stress or borderline. Um, he looks up to the authority, to Pilate, but I think he's exhausted by it. I went to gladiator school and I, I worked with a detective and I found out of that, the gladiator school in Rome, they knew to the nth degree about the way the Romans fought, mm-hmm. the warfare of the Romans. And when I got to look at some moves with the gladiators and the sword and, and they were like surgeons. They didn't flash and do all that. Mm-hmm. They were very precise, like a boxer. Bam, in, out take him out, move on. They didn't waste time bludgeoning or anything like like the Celts or the Germans or whatever with a huge broadsword. Well, they were surgeons. They had the gladius. It was small. It was a stabbing mm-hmm. device. So he's a surgeon. So you're right. He's spiritual. He's analytical by virtue of the way he fights. He would only go for the jugular or the tendon or something. He wouldn't just go anywhere. Go for the places where it would take you out. So make it count. Make it count. Surgical. Economical intelligent and and spiritual the right man to go find the job to body mm. of Christ who we know is a hoax mm. we know there's these zealots they're going to promote the idea that he rose in three days and 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 they're going to cause more problems and get more people rallying behind them we've got to quell it this is the man for the job and what I love is we know the narrative. We know the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. We're never going to see that. Clavius doesn't know that. So what we get as an audience member, that wonderful collision of events. We're going, oh, something's going to happen. He's going, and then when he is in the upper room and he witnesses what he witnesses, his world comes crumbling down. And I love that. Now, he's, he's prepped for change in many ways because he's exhausted, he's, as you say, intellectual, and he's spiritual in, some, in, the, in the capacity of praying to a Roman God. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea that he, he, in God's plan, he's the man for the job. We're going to change him, we're going to introduce him to a world elsewhere, a life elsewhere, something he could never dream of. And I love the interrogations when he thinks they're all nuts, mm-hmm. and they're not breaking. And he, he's trying everything. And I work with a detective, how do I break them? How, do I, how am I ruthless? How am I empathetic? How am I any which way can't get in there? What is it? What is this faith that they have? Mm-hmm. And then his world comes crashing down, and then he turns. And, and I love this this journey. And and we know the story, but we get to see it through the eyes of a mm-hmm. non-believer. It's almost like we get to visit our own journey again, from mm-hmm. when we first heard the story to to how it arrested us. And and so, you know, whether you're religious or not. I also think the, the idea of a second chance, the idea of here's a man who's in the industry of death. He's killed this one particular man, and the man forgives him. Mm-hmm. Well, it wouldn't it be wonderful we all take a wrong turning and we're forgiven. Now, you don't have to be religious to 
to understand the value of redemption. So I love that. So I think the success of this, what Kevin Reynolds has done, is possibly served up a film where it's not revisionist, it's not deeply conservative, it's creative, it's true to scripture, and everyone can sit in the auditorium and love the movie. Mm -hmm. That would be my kind of, my want, my wish. And I can honestly say, watching the film, Joseph is very correct when he says it allows you, even as a believer, to go through the journey, your own journey of when you first learned the Bible stories, when you first had the Bible teachings. But at the same time, as a non-believer, it opens up a piece of theologic history to you. So it, it's a lovely balancing act that he brings in the character of Clavius, but also that Kevin Reynolds maintains throughout the film on various levels. One of those levels, and as Joseph mentioned, is the inclusion of scripture passages within the film. And that was something that struck me, because Bible verses and passages that I have not heard in decades or thought about, they, they were touchstones, even for me sitting there watching it, these little nuggets. But is, are those nuggets, is that something that's important? Or is that, again, a double-edged sword? And here's what he had to say. This was a big part of the discussion when we, we all got on board. And, and the, the Kevin Reynolds and our producers, Mickey and um, Pete, worked and Firm Films worked hard with ministers and faith-based communities to make sure that this is correct and respectful mm-hmm. of Scripture. And what the overwhelming kind of positive response is, yes, it is, and we love the film. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, a, that's an amazing thing because mm-hmm. normally it's like, yeah, it's not close and we like it, but it doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, or the other side is it's like it's a Bible school kind of Sunday school lesson and it's so conservative. I'm, I'm a non-believer and a cinephile. It doesn't do anything for me. But I, I, I love the idea I, that it might... Um, it, it, it might uh, satisfy mm-hmm. the whole demographic. And, you know, I think it will. For many of you, I know you're hearing these things about Scripture and, you know, Christ and the resurrection and the crucifixion and the ascension. And I'm sure you're probably thinking some of the extremist films that have been out in the past few years uh, that have really just gone so far over the edge, ramming things down your throat. Again, Risen rams nothing down your throat. It is the mystery approach to it of solving the mystery of the missing body that really hooks you. And then everything else follows suit. And part of the magic of the film is the incredible casting that Kevin did. Um, Peter Firth plays Pilot, and it's a very interesting take on Pilot, I have to say. Um, Tom Felton, uh, we all know him as lovely Draco Malfoy in Harry Potter. Uh, he plays Clavius's right-hand junior officer, Lucius. And he is all gun-ho, do what Pilate wants, kill, slay, kill, slay. And you see a bit of a transformation with, that Tom brings to Lucius as well, kind of questioning and following taking Clavius's lead when he sees Clavius, who is so analytical and intellectual, changing and looking at things with objectivity instead of subjectivity. 
But one of the most, two of the most dynamic relationships that Joseph has in the film, one is with Cliff Curtis. There are some key moments. They only have a few scenes together, but they are absolutely spectacular. The chemistry between the two is, it amazes. But more than that, more than their chemistry, is Steve Hagen, who plays one of Jesus's uh, apostles, Bartholomew, and Hagen comes across as this. 1960s flower power hippie-esque child who has all the wide-eyed wonder and joy of the world he adds a light touch to the film and a lot of what exchanges between joseph and steve hagan is in joseph's reaction just facial reaction to this childlike awe and joy that hagan brings to bartholomew so I asked him about those dynamics. He's sort of my touchstone through those moments. Um, I love that scene where, where he tries to kind of, Octavius tries to threaten him with the nail of the crucifixion. And, and there's that moment where he catches him out and whispers, they're everywhere. Um, where are your disciples? They're everywhere. I love that. And, uh, and you're right, he has, he's, he's in touch and he, he's an, an untouchable. And that's what Octavius can't understand, that his authority has cannot reach this man and that that's an, an amazing thing i worked with Stephen. i played cyrano and cyrano de bergerac in a, in a production and he played christian so there's that love triangle between christian cyrano and, and roxanne so we already had an affinity and you have another love triangle going on here with What's, clavius bartholomew and christ yeah that's true yeah so there's the triangles are everywhere <laughs> So, um, so that, that we felt very comfortable with each other, and um, yeah, that was. Uh, that, but that's also to do with um, Kevin Reynolds casting the right people, mm-hmm. the right turns, and I, and I love that he, Christ Cliff, you know, and not in your blue-eyed blonde Jesus. That, that you know, for a lot of people, there's been much talk about casting and Hollywood films and mm-hmm. getting it right, and you know, looking Middle Eastern. I think mm-hmm. is is appropriate. Yeah. And when you look back on Joseph's career, um, he has played some very dynamic characters. Um, he has played Mar- he played Martin Luther, um, another very powerful and important figure in religious history and history as a whole uh, in the film Luther. He was in The Great Raid, which is the telling of the true story of an escape from a Japanese prison camp during World War II. Uh, most people know him for Shakespeare in Love, Running with Scissors. Um, and then recent last year, he was in the film Strangerland, which was a very quiet and interesting, but yet emotionally powerful film. So I asked him, you know, he's played Martin Luther, he's played so many significant and diverse characters. What does he look for when he's choosing a character to play? What, is the, what appeals to him? Um, you know, but, you know, you've mentioned Martin Luther. And there's one or two others that, that that are really interesting in that they're the, the guys that raised. I've said this in one other interview. They, they they raised the bar in terms of what they believe in, and it, it could, it's a faith and, and and it's a positive belief and a moral code and conduct. And we all want to live by that. And sometimes we let ourselves down. So it's lovely to look at rocks who weather the storm and who are isolated by their beliefs in the face of a greater authority who comes down heavy on them and they just remain 
solid and they stick to their belief and I, and I love that so I, I'm sort of gravitated towards those sort of voices and for all of us it's a good thing that he does I'm very pleased that he does but without a doubt if you get a chance see Risen the mystery detective aspect of it alone will intrigue you the locations are stunning uh, the performances are top notch and you'll find more about Risen on my website and other places with some of the other interviews with Cliff Curtis and uh, the producers plus writer Paul Alio. so Risen is in theaters now it's by Affirm Films go see it uh, and I know I know that my aunt and her church ladies down at, at Cottonwood Baptist they will be going to see it so I'm very and I'm very happy about that Another film that opened up this weekend is Race. We're going to take a short break first, then we'll come back and we'll talk more about Race, which is timed perfectly for Black History Month. Time to tune in and log on with Behind the Lens. Join noted film critic Debbie Lynn Elias and a lineup of talented co-hosts and informed guests each week as she goes behind the lens and below the line. We'll take in-depth looks at films and filmmaking with the movers and shakers and up-and-comers of the industry, along with movie reviews, interviews, awards, festival coverage, specialty segments like Tech Talk and Classic Corner. Tune in to Behind the Lens every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Adrenaline Radio. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. So, we are back. So, let's talk a little bit about race. Um, nobody can say that we are not being very diverse on Behind the Lens. Let me tell you, we've got religion. Now we've got race, the Jesse Owens story. This is a fascinating story. Um, Olympic aficionados out there and people that have followed the Olympics for years and know some Olympic history will love this film. Uh, as somebody that had, in the past, in 1984, did PSAs on the Olympics... Uh, and did a lot of research into the history of them. I am enthralled with this film and what writer-director Stephen Hopkins has uh, Stephen Hopkins has done. It is absolutely fabulous. Um, there's never been a real story on the behind-the-scenes of Jesse Owens. We all have seen those grainy images that have peppered TV screens every Olympics that there ha- was a television biopic uh, on him, but never a big screen. Um, this film concentrates on the years 1933 to 1936. 1933, when Jesse went to Ohio State University, came under the mentorship of Coach Larry Snyder, and then, against all obstacles, went to the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. What's significant about, the, from a historical standpoint, the 1936 games is it was at the height of Nazism. Hitler was trying to put a brave face and whitewash everything so that the world would not really see what was happening in Nazi Germany behind the scenes. So it was very important to him to have the United States come. And he wanted to actually make these 
quote-unquote, the Nazi games. Uh, we have to give, you know, the Germans and Adolf Hitler credit for, for inventing the modern games as we now see them. The releasing of the doves, the parade of nations, um, the, the glory, the spectacle, the grandeur. That's all thanks to the Germans. They, they knew how to do things big. Um, but also, what we know, a lot of what we know and what we see is thanks to German filmmaker Lenny Reifenstahl, a female filmmaker, and she was a real protege of Goebbels and Babelsberg Studios. She filmed, she, to make her film Olympiad, uh, that was sanctioned by uh, Hitler, she filmed everything. So all of those images that you see and have seen over the years, that's all from female filmmaker Lenny Reifenstahl. Now think about that. In this age of Oscars so white and the diversity arguments, we've got the Nazi regime behind the Olympics. We've got a black African-American running. We have a female filmmaker involved. Um... 1936 could have been more diverse than 2016 is in some respects. But what now happens with this film called Race is we go behind the scenes. We see the debates between uh, U.S. Olympic Committee President Jeremiah Mahoney and the future International Olympic Committee President Avery Brundage. Uh, Many people may remember Brundage best for the Munich Olympics and he is the one that insisted the Olympics continue after the massacre of the Israeli Olympic team. But all of this plays into how Jesse Owens got to the 1936 Olympics. Um, So in the next set, we're going to take a short, I'm to tease you with that uh, and, and wet your taste buds for hearing from, Stephen Hopkins. Um, I'll let you ruminate on that. But right now, we are going to welcome Marcus Ryman is here. Hello, Marcus. Hey, Debbie. How are you? I am fine. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Have you recovered from jet lag yet? I have. I have. It usually takes a day and a half, and then I'm, then I'm here. So um, it's all good. I mean, so, you know, so all the listeners know, you flew in from Austria the other night just to attend the Hollywood Independent Real Film Festival, and you'll be, and now you'll be here through the week when One Night in Hollywood plays on Thursday night. On Thursday night, yes, we're we're very excited to um, be in another festival here in Hollywood. And sadly, I had to miss the last one, and then because... uh, because due to an injury I, I uh, got in Papua New Guinea. Uh, so I had to miss that one, and I missed uh, Malibu. So I'm very excited that I finally made it to, uh, to attend the festival here. Now, did you get to go to Berlin? I went to Berlin, which was super nice, because I lived in Berlin for seven years. And um, it was great to, to be there. Um, we had a sold-out screening, which was very nice. Lots of friends came out. It was, uh, it was really, really a great experience. Well, if you can't get your friends to buy tickets, you might as well give it up. Exactly. <laughs> well, hope, hopefully a lot of everybody's friends will be screening the film here 
because it is, as you guys know, I just, I love this short. I just laugh myself silly. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's, and thank you very much for your support so far. I know Sherry was on the show twice. <laughs> now I'm on the show, so I'm very happy about that. And we're going to get Ian on yet. Yes, we got to work. We, on, we got to work on your show as well. We got to work on getting Ian on the show too. Now, how I did think he's right now? He's in Thailand. He's shooting. So, oh um, no! Oh, yes. he got back yesterday. Oh, he got. Oh, so you know more than I do. You know, ear to the ground, ear to the ground, Marcus. <laughs> Come on, you should. Yeah. You should know that. I should know that. So uh, shame on me. (laughs) (laughs) But no, he is back. So hopefully he will be at uh, the screening Thursday night. But yeah, that's we got to work on him next to keep the ball rolling for one night in Hollywood. So I heard that you're going to be there so we can work on him together. I am going to be there. I haven't seen Ian in a number of years. I did an interview years ago with he and Finola Hughes at the height of Ah. at the height of the Anna and Duke. Uh, storyline and fame on General Hospital and somewhere, and I promised Sherry I would find the, the pictures. There are pictures of the three of us together. How funny. So yeah, he's a, He is an amazing colleague and a great guy, so let's work on him so that he comes back <laughs> on your show. So how did you get involved with One Night in Hollywood? Because, you know, so often with these, you know, quote-unquote low-budget, no-budget, as I like to call them, um, and Sherry's approach with One Night in Hollywood is different than most because she's using this as a teaser for the feature film One Week in Hollywood. Exactly. Exactly. So I got involved. There. It's, a, it's a, quite a long story. I met Sherry, I think, two and a half years ago at a screening through a mutual friend. And I just started coming out here, and I was looking, uh, looking to transition into... Uh, like American film and TV. And uh, so we got introduced, and she was at the time looking to shoot a short, which, call, which is called On a Dime, which is an amazing script for a short. And um, after reading On a Dime, I, I asked her to, to read everything else that she had, and I could see that everything that she had was very, very different. But you could always see her quality as a writer, mm-hmm. which, which is, like, amazing. Yeah, Sherry and, has a distinct uh, so thumbprint. Instead of, instead of going the route of, you know, uh, waiting here until the phone rings and going to auditions and all that, Sherry and I decided to, uh, to go the other way and develop a, um, a script, which is called One Week in Hollywood, which is the feature out of which we developed uh, One Night in Hollywood. So, so it's been, as you say, the other way around, but it's been an, an incredible ride. We have a great team with us. And uh, now, now uh, one night in Hollywood is picking up, and it has a really nice run on the festival circuit. So it's it's very exciting, and it's been a great ride with Sherry. What is it about this script? Because it is hilarious, but beyond the hu- the inherent humor, none of the humor yeah. is forced. I mean, it's biting, it's sharp, it's very it's very dark comedy, but yeah. it's it's spot on. I mean, she nails. You know, Hollywood to a T. Uh, but what is it that spoke to you in this script and that made you then want to jump in and... Because you're one of the producers, but you're also acting in it. Yeah. 
Well, the, I mean, the thing is that the, the thing that spoke to me as an actor is uh, is always this question of how far do you go without uh, corrupting your your creative integrity? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and since we're all in a in a mass media business, this is always the question that we always have to ask ourselves. So I come from the theater. I was in the theater for nine years, which is a totally different game. And um, you know, you very much know what you sell, uh, get yourself into. But um, but uh, film and TV is a is a different beast. So you always have to ask yourself the question: Do I do? Will 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 I take this role? Can I uh, can I um, kind of justify it uh, to myself? And um, this is this is a conflict where we're all in constantly. So this is something that uh, that truly spoke to me. And it's a it's a struggle. And it's um, you know it was getting into this. It was also about keeping control of the way I want to launch my career here. Mm-hmm. So um, it's very it's very close to home somehow. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what what spoke to me, and it's uh, what I like about it very much is the subtlety of it. It's not on the nose. It's not demonizing, but it's the reality of working in the in the entertainment business that we have to you know that we're facing uh, every day. Mm-hmm. And of course, who knows? There could be a potential investor out there that would like you know some screenwriters I'm, or directors sh- to go knock sh- somebody I'm sure off. There is. <laughs> I'm sure there is. It's like it's as you know. There's. It's always getting it to the right person uh, that uh, that gets behind something and unleashes his or her energy onto it. So um, we're we're keeping our fingers crossed, and I'm sure the right person will come. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, coming out of theater with yeah. nine years of a theater background, how beneficial is that to you when you're doing TV and film? And what are the most striking differences or things that you may have had to unlearn or alter in your approaches? Well, there's obviously as a as a as a very obvious difference. Uh, there is the the size of of play. Now, if you're on stage and you're playing in front of uh, eighteen hundred people and you have three balconies and you have to project completely different and everything that you do, you take into your body. Here in front of the camera, you have to turn every and tone everything down. So, uh, so that is very, very different. But it's like a completely new job somehow. I see these two trades very, very different from each other, and that's that's very exciting. After nine years in the in the theater, playing every night, you know, rehearsing in the morning, playing at night, uh, we have a very different system with the repertory theater system, where we sign to a theater for for two years, let's say, and play. Uh, different plays on, uh, in this in this stretch, so it's a it's a very different uh, system than you have here. Um, but uh, after nine years in the theater, you kind of know what you're doing. So it was very exciting for me to to relearn my my craft. Mm. Um, and what what's the same? What's or what the the, the similarity is? Is that when the moment is right and you're on it and you're partners and colleagues are on it it's just magic you know you can hear the set go quiet you hear the audience go quiet and you're just you just know you're in the moment and um that's that's where the magic happens Mm. now because you're also uh involved as a producer on one night in hollywood how important are the production values to you i have to say and sherry knows this i've made no secret of it 
The production values on this short are so high, the cinematography dazzles, especially when we get inside, you know, the apartment of Ian's uh, character. The yeah. color is saturated. It's rich. There's texture. The, the production values are extremely high. Is that important to you as a producer? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think um, you know, it's, it, you just, to, to make magic happen, you need a high production value. It, it's like, you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, the, the performances can be as good as they want. The frames can be set up beautifully. But um, if it doesn't look the part, or it doesn't feel the part, then you're, as the audience, you always, there's always this moment of detachment because there's something bothering you here or there. So, so production value is, for me as a producer, is, is very, very important. And as I said before, we have a great team uh, around us with Sherry's uh, experience in the business and all the network that she's built up over the years. We have uh, Arlette's involved with it. We have Rick Peters as a partner of me. Billy Worth is on board, so um, so that the team around it is extremely important to make uh, to 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 make this story come alive and to to make really make it believable. Mm-hmm. Now, coming out of the theater, do you think that also helps your eye with production values on TV and film? Um, I I'm not sure. I mean, in the theater, it's it, it's always the the magic happens. In uh, also in the crafts of people, you know, because mm-hmm. we have so little money in in uh, in theater. Even though we're in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, in the German-speaking region, we have state-funded theaters, and we're we can count ourselves lucky to have that. Um, but but still, I mean, it's it's um, it's all illusion, and you have to work with uh, what's there. So. Um, uh, I think I think it trains your eye f- eye for detail uh, mm-hmm. that definitely, and um, it makes you aware of uh, of the quality of people's craft. So mm-hmm. that's uh, that, I guess it helps. I guess it helps. Well, you know another another craft that you do that I find yeah. fascinating is your work as the director of TBA of the Thiessen Bornemisa Art Academy. Correct. That's right. So it's a part of uh, Thyssen Bornemessa Art Contemporary, which is a uh, contemporary art foundation and uh, and art collection. And I'm the director of the TBA 21 Academy, which is uh, a program where we combine art, science, and conservation. Um, we created a program within the academy, which is called The Current, uh, which is... Although we're an art foundation, it is more a knowledge production and a creative knowledge production than an art production mm-hmm. uh, where we combine art, science, conservation, and exploration. So we take teams of artists and scientists, environmentalists, other cultural producers out into the fields, and we're going to the South Pacific at the moment, onto a boat, uh, which is a 142-foot explorer vessel, very nice, uh, amazing, <laughs> rugged, seaworthy boat, and uh, we take these these groups of uh, high quality uh, artists and and uh, great scientists out to do field research um, and uh, do their investigations. The the aim of the of this whole um, program is to recommunicate climate change because climate change is uh, is this huge 
um, topic that's very, very abstract and, and hard to fathom. And um, what we are trying to do is to, to break it down and make it more tangible. And the quality of um, putting artists together with scientists is that artists can make you feel what science makes you tries to make you understand. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a di different entry point into these topics. Uh, we take a very creative approach in, uh, in tackling them. And, um, and then within six months after the expeditions that these teams go on, they have to stage a two to three day conference, uh, very performative, very engaging, very across the board. So uh, it's free. It's, uh, it's for, for a very inclusive audience, so I want, um, whatever, uh, scientists from MIT to think of an audience that they're like fishermen out, uh, sitting out there, so they have to kind of communicate and find a vocabulary that, um, that translates what we're doing uh, into very simple terms that it comes out of this academic realm, that it, which is very protected and very ring-fenced, so the, the aim is really to uh, reach a very wide audience. Um, and we're just coming up to the first, what we call convening, the first conference, uh, which is happening in March in Jamaica, in Kingston, Jamaica. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, very, very exciting. And we have, we have a great group of um, speakers, performers, uh, artists that do installations. So it's also it's trying to find a different form of knowledge transfer than just... Uh, from books, from writings, from, uh, you know, from scientific papers. So um, that's going to be very exciting. It's very experimental. We're, we're, this, we're, this is going to be the first convening. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm very excited about that. Now, are there any plans through this environmental philanthropy and these conferences to actually, you know, turn them into documentaries because we have the great the, there's a great surge and very successful surge of films like racing extinction yeah. and uh energizing our world uh on climate change and things you can do with architecture and just by changing how you dye fabric fascinating documentaries that absolutely that fall absolutely. into line so what we do we have a, we have a two uh two people, um, documentary team with us at all times. We have a cinematographer called Barney Broomfield, who's just been shortlisted for, uh, for the Oscars. Sadly, they didn't make it to the, uh, to the final uh, selection. Which, um, which film short? called We Come As Friends. Oh. He was, uh, he, yeah, which is an amazing film, which is an amazing film. And he's a, he is a great cinematographer, uh, he's absolutely used to shooting in difficult environments um, and capturing capturing the magic moments. And then we have a field producer called Lauren Matic, who also shoots B camera, does the sound. She has she does everything, and uh, so they're always with us. The plan here is to release, and that's what we've done so far, uh, at least on our website, which is tba21.org, and then slash the oceans. Um, what we do is we release short film uh, documentaries. Mm -hmm. so it's, uh, two, it's three and a half to five minute documentaries about the trips that we go on. Uh, and they, they, we try to find a modern contemporary language, visual language for these, for these documentaries. So even though they're, they're short format, we try not to lose the content of them. Uh, and then it, it varies from 
short documentary content to to filmic essays, which are very beautiful. So um, we we absolutely use this language as uh, as a communication tool as well. I mean, I love that. And maybe, who knows, maybe there's a feature film documentary coming out of it at the end. That would be nice. You know, there's nothing more beautiful in my eyes than underwater photography. Yes. And if you're out there capturing all of this, you know, I can just imagine how beautiful all of, you know, all of the footage is. Now I have to go and look at all of the shorts. You know, what you're doing, I love that concept. Um, there's there's another one, uh, a similar concept that's out there right now is part of HBO Docs um, called Conflict. And it's all these conflict photographers that, and conflict yeah. not just war, but domestic violence is a form of conflict. You know, yeah. war photography. And they're these three and a half to seven minute shorts that are absolutely fascinating. And I know the goal there is to eventually put something together as a feature as well. I mean, this is a, a fabulous format that you're exploring. Yes, it's very, it's, it's very exciting. A short, uh, short um, documentary format, I think, is, is very, very exciting. Um, and, and obviously, by going out there over and over and over again and collecting all this visual content, um, the, the, the aim or the hope is that at the end of the day that we have... Um, that we have enough of an exciting story to put it all together into one and and uh, make you know span the big the big storyline there. Um, the the thing is that all these places that you go to, even even though uh, they're close together, like whatever Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands, which we went to the last in the last summer, they're so different. And you can really see uh, the impact that we have, and especially the extraction industry has on these in pristine environments and um, to go out there and to see how people have to cope with uh, with uh, the effects of climate change although they don't contribute or they they contribute less than two percent of the greenhouse emission gases um, it's 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 sad on the one hand but then to see how resourceful the people out there are how inbuilt sustainability into their uh, traditions and in, in, in their day-to-day life is, is uh, extremely spectacular and um, definitely something we can learn from. Well, you know, now something I have to ask, did you, the biofluorescent hawk-billed sea turtle. <laughs> yes. I am, I love turtles. I am turtle crazy. You know, I have to hear about this. You have actually photographed, filmed, and seen them up close. Yes. So David Gruber, who is a National Geographic explorer, emerging National Geographic explorer, he's a, a marine biologist uh, specialized on perception, fish perce- uh, for perception. And um, we were out with him in the Solomon Islands. Uh, David has built this um, amazing rig for his red camera which he dies with, uh, which is equipped with uh, blue lights. These blue lights match exactly the spectrum of blue at 120 feet depth in the ocean. So what we do is we go out uh, diving at night with, with these blue lights. What it does is it simulates um, the, the perception that fish have when they, when they swim in this giant blue filter, which the ocean is. 
And um, we went out that night to look at crinoids. Um, so we went out there, we looked at the corals, which already look spectacular. They're all fluorescent green, fluorescent red, fluorescent yellow, and it's like an acid party in the 90s. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, out of the blue, out of nowhere, this hawksbill turtle swims into the light and just lights up. Wow. And so David and I, were, we were the first uh, people to ever see a biofluorescent turtle. They had never expected a reptile to be uh, biofluorescent. They knew about fish. They knew, obviously, mm -hmm. about the corals. They had found a shark. They had found a ray. But they had never expected uh, a turtle to be biofluorescent. So this was actually uh, last year, August, September, something like that. And it was, a, it was quite a major discovery. So that was, that was extremely exciting. Now, do we have a short film, a short documentary of that on the website yet? We do. <gasps> we absolutely do. It's up on the website. You can see it. It's uh, David explaining... Um, explaining uh, the concept of the biofluorescence and uh, you can absolutely see our excitement of finding a biofluorescent turtle in the middle of uh, nowhere in the Solomon Islands in a um, not nothing that we had expected to see and uh, I think I think our excitement transports quite well well you know that between now and Thursday when I see you you know I'm going to be watching that you better oh ab yeah. absolutely Marcus, I can't thank you enough. This has been just so much fun today. You will come back on the show again. I will. I absolutely. I promise I will be back. I'm looking forward to seeing you on Thursday, and thank you very much for having me. And everybody, you can still get tickets for the Shorts Program, Hollywood Independent Real Film Festival, 6 o'clock, Thursday. 6 o'clock. The 25th. Come out, everybody. And they're inexpensive tickets. They're inexpensive tickets, absolutely. It's either, so you it's should, either 12, All 50. of you should come out and enjoy the short. Uh, come out and hang out with us afterwards. And uh, we can talk about the film, about the biofluorescent turtle, whatever you want to talk about. Well, I will see you on Thursday. Perfect. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a great day. That was Marcus Ryman, actor, producer, One Night in Hollywood, and environmental philanthropist. So we're going to go back to Stephen Hopkins and race right now. We're just racing between topics here today. Um, so I gave you the, ba the basic setup of uh, what race is about in terms of the limited scope in uh, the three-year time period in Jesse Owens' life and his getting to the Olympics. But I, I talked to Stephen and asked him about the design construct with his longtime cinematographer Peter Levy and his editor John Smith because this is a film Stephen has done Lost in Space, Predator 2 uh, he's House of Lies Californication race is unlike anything he's done before so it takes a collaborative effort to pull this off. Here's what he had to say Obviously. I had to shoot the whole film in nine weeks and there were, some days I'd shoot seven pages I'd shoot scenes in one take because that's what I had time for mm. So we know each other very well, so we know what we're, what we're doing. And, and I didn't want it to feel, you know, Peter wanted to shoot it, you know, sepia and gold. And no, it's not, I don't want to make it feel like an old film. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's more important, actually, that because of the fairy tale nature of the story, that you actually believe it happened. And that mm. there's some great, and also the 30s 
looked very kind of beautiful. It, yeah. they actually, kind of the clothes were crazy. The yeah. cars were bonkers. It actually it's a cute looking time. Even the you know you look at the African American eras of poverty. We 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 matched all the photos from mm-hmm. uh, children, his children at the house and how they lived and everything. So we we matched exactly what. They did, but you, sometimes when you match something, it doesn't tell the story. It tells how it feels, mm-hmm. you know, to be there. And and so um, we wanted to take the cuteness out of it and make it feel as modern as I could. And, you know, I said, we're not doing this film in golden colours because it's an old, but we're doing it gritty and real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a great beauty in gritty and real, I yeah. think. You know, you shoot it a bit documentary style. But, you know, there's a lot of beautiful shots in the movie. There's a lot of very grand shots, very epic scale shots. But, you know, uh, there are obviously integrated visual effects in almost Mm -hmm. all of those. You know, they have to be. There's no way most of it, almost none of the places exist. You know, we have shots of New York, which look quite different than they do now. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, so it's a huge amount of visual effects. When I shot this year and almost two years ago. Yeah. So it's, uh, we've been working in post for a long time on it to fix it up. When did you finish in post? Uh, About... Month ago, <laughs> just before Christmas. Actually, I still. I'm back on Wednesday. I'm going to see the final, final version because we're still mucking around. Yeah, so you could still tweak it. Oh yeah, no, no. Just I, I, I saw some of the subtitles weren't quite right and things like that. Mm-hmm. But we finished it. Um, I saw uh, the, the version you saw um, in the end of November. Mm-hmm. We scored it in Berlin last summer with Rachel Portman, mm-hmm. and and uh, yeah, it's a. It is certainly one of the most complicated films I've ever had to make, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of the amount of images in it and then the amount of cutting, you mm-hmm. know, to make give it the pace of a modern film without rushing, you know, because biopics, as you know, understand, is very difficult to yeah. portray. They've become, they can be, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and that doesn't help, mm-hmm. you know. To, you do a, do a great documentary that way, but it has to have a theme. Documentary has to have a theme. Right. You have to have a a story you're telling and obviously their relationship ties the movie together I mm-hmm. think and, uh, and and the Nazi point of view I think is interesting enough mm-hmm. to get away with it and shooting scenes in German is like no was no joke well so uh, the obvious question is why this story why did Stephen Hopkins do this story well, that's the last studio film we did. Since then, I did Under Suspicion, Virginia, right, Michael is... Ritchie, did the Peter Sellers film, mm-hmm. uh, not a very good horror film called The Reaping, but I've also did 24 and House yeah. of Lies and Californication, which are all sort of little yeah. sweet things. And, I, and I, when I found out about this guy, I thought, I think the hardest kind of film you can make is an inspirational film. Mm-hmm. It's easier, I think, to make somebody scared or laugh mm-hmm. than to tell an uplifting story. So it's something I've never done. It's really challenging. And uh, it was pretty difficult and exhausting experience I gotta say we made it on a shoestring budget I never got paid for it and and it was just a, a, a great hardship to a lot of people to make this film but I actually kind of lost I lost my focus on whether I even liked the film anymore but uh, it's, it's been great the last few days because people seem to really get something out of it well, and get something out of it, you do, especially with Stefan James' performance. Many of you may remember Stefan from When the Game Stands Tall. Uh, that's where I really took note of him, and then he was in Selma after that. But to see him here, uh, and I go into great detail in my review, which is up and out all over right now, of the film, um, of his work ethic and how he trained to actually run and act, have the physicality of Jesse Owens in addition to 
the familial and personal aspect, much of which, which uh, Stefan got from speaking with Jesse Owens' daughters. And yes, Jesse Owens' daughters were integral to the production of this film. But, you know, after Stephen Hopkins has made this film, worked with Stefan, worked with the Owens' daughters, what stuck with him about this story? Yeah, he was overlooked. Yeah. People don't know him, really, or know this... It was only when I found out about this. Like, once you find out one fact, you go, what? And then you find another fact, and you just t- start tying them all together. And you see this amazing series of, uh, of conspiracies mm-hmm. really going on everywhere mm-hmm. to, to, to make... Yeah, and, and most of this stuff is happening somewhere today, somewhere yeah. in the world. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that I think the athletics is going through a big... Same thing. Changes now. The Olympic Committee, there's a lot of corruption in there. A lot of people got paid for the mm-hmm. Russian thing. A lot of people get paid for the Brazilian one. You know, I, uh, FIFA is a, is, a, is a scandalous chaos. You know, I mean, but the but sport is so big in the world, right? Yeah. It's probably one of the biggest industries in the world. Yeah, and when you sit here now in the 21st century and you take a look back at the times and what was transpiring there, and we do see so much of that in the film, uh, it gives you a great, a greater historical appreciation and perspective on the world and on sports. So we're out of time today. We'll be back next week. We will hear more from Stephen Hopkins. We will hear from Ciro Guerra, uh, writer-director of Embrace of the Serpent. And we've got three special guests next week.